Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, resident wordster and senior editor at Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield, Emily Brewster takes on a lis- listener's question from Northampton's Claire Morinen. Morinen? Morno. Morno! <laughs> About two adjectives making a shift in their meanings. And we speak with Rhonda Anderson, Western Massachusetts Commissioner of Indian Affairs, in addition to being appointed to the board of the Woodland Partnership of Western Mass., We'll get into her work with Okiteo, Cultural Center in Ashfield, the very nature of restorative work, and more. In my defense, I took Spanish. But speaking of things adjacent to Okiteo... From the end, I take you to the beginning. I've summoned the Bacai, long companions of the journey home. Looking at a giant sculpture on this hill, is that a set piece? That is a permanent set piece. Okay, that's awesome. As we go, if something is really special in a performance, we keep it and make it a permanent part of the landscape. You'll see a lot of those things. There's a place that's part of the outdoor promenade, I guess if you want to call it that, that I still think of as Calypso's Island from when you did the Odyssey. And every time I go by there, I'm like... Yeah, we'll be down there tonight. It's a beautiful stonework and like an obelisk-looking structure. So there's all these little amazing gems that you'll walk by on the farm. And then there is, you know, there's indoor parts. There's a little pond that works its way into the production as well. huge pond. It is like a, a lake. It's somewhere between lake At and pond. night. I could swim across it, so it's not that big. You definitely could, <laughs> but not when the lights are on and you don't know how big it is. Okay, wink, wink. Yeah. Stacy Klein. This is Double Edge Theater. 41 years old, Double Edge Theater. This type of theater is an experience. It was founded in Boston, but came here to a farm in Ashfield when? 29 years ago. So we started out as a women's theater. It was eight women. In 1982, we started with the performance Rights, and Rights was a modern adaptation of the Bacchae by Euripides. Rights was about Agave's story, the woman whose son unfortunately dies in the end of the Bacchae. Maureen Duffy, the author of that, was telling that story. And we wanted to only have women in our theater because we were at Tufts at the time. We were all graduate students and there weren't any women teachers for us. So we decided to take things into our own hands, like the chorus of the Bacchae, and get some power going. For me, the Bacchae, and that's why we call this the hidden territories of the Bacchae instead of the Bacchae, Mm -hmm. because it's our version of what happens in those hidden territories. So the Bacchae are women of Dionysus, Dionysus, god of wine, wildness, and the Bacchae basically were rematriating their lands. Thebes, where Dionysus goes back to, was already overtaken by patriarchy. The Bacchae basically are the women who battle with Dionysus to rematriate the patriarchy. Instead of being kind of his posse slash groupies as it's often framed. Yes, I think that's really important that you said that. Is the re-staging of it outside also an intentional part of that reframing to 
kind of reclaim outdoor like natural space to be more theatrical as opposed to being inside which is less wild because for those who don't know this summer spectacle that's happened for many years is in case an, you couldn't hear from the back right, the car is going by birds it's outdoor and indoor it's not sit down in a seat and watch a proscenium stage production you're all over the place around this farm yes so we've been doing i think maybe it's our 20th 21st indoor outdoor spectacle there's many so many reasons to do hidden territories of the Bacchae. first is a circle for double edge second we in the last years have been trying to get back to exploring again women's leadership while what would happen if we had a matriarchal society finally the environment is a so powerfully important in the Bacchae. it's all about nature And not to overstate this, but it's opposite of what the patriarchy is trying to do, which is to control nature. We're trying to love nature. We're trying to embrace nature. Double Edge also has some history with activist street theater. And having a strong message is always part of what you're doing. Yes, but activist theater, it doesn't need to be a stereotype restructuring our world, even just acknowledging that a tree exists, that water is something we need to value. Um, I think those are activist things, as well as all of our partnerships, which are all activists. The blood that flows within my veins is like the ocean, river, and rain. My spirit soars and takes me higher. Here is where I keep my fire. We're speaking with Stacy Klein, who's the founding artistic director of Double Edge Theater here in Asheville, their 41st year as a theater company. For the second year in a row, for their summer spectacle, The Hidden Territories of the Bacchae is the name of the production. You do more than this. I think a lot of people think this is what Double Edge is. It's an outdoor, indoor theater thing that happens in July and August. But you have an overarching vision, a mission of living culture, and a whole community that surrounds Double Edge all year long. Yes, so we have performances in the spring, in the fall. Those are indoor performances. We have partnerships with three organizations, um, the Okiteo Cultural Center, which is a a native cultural center. Um, And it's worth noting that Double Edge was really instrumental in helping to found and welcoming indigenous people in the area to have their own cultural center. Yes, we are partners with the Jupiter Performance Studio. Ebony Noel Golden is the director of that. She does black eco-womanist theater. They're based in Harlem. They do quite a bit of their outdoor work starts here. Um, We're also partners with the Theater Offensive, which is a LGBTQ POC theater, the largest of its kind in the United States, and that is in Boston. Basically, all of our work is to allow people the space that we are privileged to be on and the land that we're on and to work outside and to actually know what the outside is. Do your shows ever leave this space here in in Asheville? Yes. So we tour our outdoor performances. We've toured in Springfield um, at Forest Park. And in fact, one of the students that we worked with at Forest Park, one of the students has come back as a professional. He's a professional aerialist. You'll see him tonight. Um, That's very exciting to all of us. (laughs) In the air of heaven, the daughters of heaven live. They watch the lives of men. And what passes for wisdom 
is not. So now we're at the, uh, it's kind of like an after party of the first preview. It was incredible. You're Pan, right? I am Pan. Yeah. And Pantheus. And yes. You know, get the duality of it. What's your name? My name is Victor. Where are you from? I'm from Springfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> nice. How long have you been with Double Edge? This is my seventh year, I think. Double Edge brought a production to Forest Park. Is that the first time you got involved? Yep. With that production, I mainly sang and stilted. And then since then, I dance now and... Yeah, and you're like up in a tree and... Up in a tree, like, I'm on a pole, then I'm on... I fly, I do a lot. What keeps you involved in Double Ed? It kind of brings you out to the box, you know? I'm a traditional dancer, I just dance. And when I came here, you know, it's kind of like very... Cirque du Soleil as very spectacle, you know? You get to do things outside the box, which I love. And it, you get to test your physical strength and I'm we all witnessed for it. it. You're doing great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. My name is Yusi Machuku. I'm originally from Nigeria. I came to the United States when I was really young. I grew up in the Maryland DC area. Oh what? Yeah. Yeah. Hydesville, Maryland. Shout out to PG County. I just graduated with my masters um, in music history from the University of Massachusetts about two months ago, three months ago now. This is my first collaboration with Double Edge. How did you get involved? Carlos. <laughs> Carlos Uriona, Carlos, my good friend. Carlos. Siempre. I was working at a music store teaching private lessons. I'm a violist. I've been um, playing viola for about 13 years now. That's how I got into the arts. And when I came upstairs, the guys upstairs said, this guy called for you. And it was Carlos. And then from there, we just kind of connected. And I, you, never, I never let go. Never like let I wrote, go. Like a Rottweiler. Yeah. And I said, listen, you don't need to do it but and I finally after getting my master's degree was able to do a collaboration with Double Edge so here I am I'm a violist but I also sing dance but that's more of a recent thing but here we are <laughs> that was a recent thing the way yeah. you were able you were on top of a roof dancing were, on a pole you were yeah. doing some magical pole yeah. work it was I've actually only been pole dancing for about a year now oh, a year and three you months are very good thank you thank you so much how has it been this first experience it's been a lot, but it's been a great time. You know, theater is different for me, um, but Double Edge has a wonderful community here. Stacy is great. Um, my collaborators are wonderful people. I really just love how we come together and we make magic happen. Hi, Monty. Kalis. Hola, Kali. Hello. Mika. Nice to meet you. <laughs> You're my dear friend Carlos's daughter-in-law, yes. but you brought a lot of uh, Argentinian flair and more musically to this. What's your role in the hidden territories of the Baca? I take my former heritage from Argentina and Latin America, and then I take with my Jewish roots because I have a kind of mix. I have a native side too, uh, so that's, let's say, that's what I have to share here. So it's so beautiful to share with them. Uh, we are like kind of sisters now. But in this, you're Dionysus. In this eye, my name is Dionysus. The production feels like you are calling out to the women of the world to join you in rematriating 
this place? Yes, I feel that I am looking for freedom in myself and hoping to inspire the women around me, um, open a door for them to find that freedom as well, and they are doing that. We're lifting each other up and hopefully the audience as well. Last year people also said it was very timely and that women's rights need to be spoken about in ways that are not only literal but also um, of the soul. People were hurting for that conversation to be had and I think this year it's even more. My name is Jeremy Eaton. So you helped design this. Yes, I did. My question is about immersion versus interaction with theater of this type. This is definitely immersive theater, but it's not interactive theater. That line is an interesting one to tread. Where and why do you find those lines? Well, let me just take a step back and say, when you say interaction, because these words get said about art in so many different ways, you're talking about explicit interaction between an actor and an audience member. In some immersive theater, yeah. they act at yeah. you. So Yes. Yeah. And I like that, but some and people this, hate it. In <laughs> this reality, for example, your understanding, you didn't feel like they were, you no, didn't I exist felt, within I felt like my role yeah. was definitely more mm-hmm. Observer. To me, it is actually um, a tremendously interactive performance, but in a very private way. Because rather than having the actors draw your kind of interactive attention, we're allowing nature to do that. But I think nature gets less of a chance to do that the way that even just human beings are. If there's an actor right in your face being mm. like, you and me are having this moment, you might miss the moment of realizing your shoes have gotten wet. Or a bullfrog and, in the or pond. Or there's a bullfrog croaking you know, in the, the pond. Or, you know, the three goats who yes. decided to join yeah. in. <laughs> and that's very much how I experience this performance and also think about it as a designer is that there's a space being held, that real interaction. But I, I use the word private because I think it is... It's it's personal. I saw a company of women and joined them. Dylan Young, general manager at Double Edge Theater. You've been doing this for how long? Uh, about five years. Yeah. yeah. This is a really cool place, and it's really pushed me to be a fuller person. Do you feel like that's kind of the nature of doing immersive, like really intensive theater like this? It really, it brings a different depth to relationships that you have with people because you have to bring your full self. It's not just, you know, doing rehearsal and then doing business. It's all interconnected and we're all interconnected and there's all these layers and they all sort of bleed into each other. And so it's a really, it's a unique thing to be doing all of these things and wearing all these hats. The listener, it's lost on them that you're the general manager, but you are in costume right now, and yeah. we're in the production. You, you were not in costume when we first encountered you. You were parking you were people. Parking people. Yeah. I was, and I had a radio and a, a check-in list. Yes, and I am now fully costumed. A full-on member of the Bacchae. Yes, yes. That's. I think that's part of the beauty of it. We're speaking with Stacy Klein, who's the founding artistic director of Double Edge Theatre here in Asheville, their 41st year as a theatre company. For the second year in a row, for their summer spectacle, The Hidden Territories of the Bacchae is the name of the production. We have saved some tickets uh-huh. this year. Usually on my previous radio show, whenever we would have this conversation, you were out of luck. This <laughs> audio was about the closest you were going to get to the experience. But you can still get tickets? You can. Each week we're releasing a few more tickets so Uh that it's not like the early bird catches the worm Uh or something like that because people so complain so much like (laughs) i couldn't get tickets why didn't you ask us and this was also maybe my last large spectacle so we made it a big deal why is this maybe your last large spectacle i'm old (laughs) (laughs) you're not that old
That's double-edged theater Stacy Klein. Coming up, find out how Stacy used her platform to inspire the creation of the Okiteo Cultural Center, an artistic safe haven for our local indigenous community. One of the founders of that organization is Western Mass's Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Rhonda Anderson, who we'll talk to later in the show about her recent appointment to the Woodland Partnership of Western Massachusetts and ongoing efforts to increase indigenous visibility across the Bay State. And we're not craven, nor are we mortified of listener questions, especially when word nerd Emily Brewster finds answers for them, and we'll hear her answer to a question from listener Claire Morneau from Northampton up next. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, residing in Greenfield, our fair dictionary in Springfield, right down the street from these stations. We got an email from Claire Morneau. It reads, Hi, I love hearing your segments with Emily from Merriam-Webster. Does she take reader questions? Why, yes, Claire, we do. Here's mine in case she does. I've been wondering about the meaning slippage of two words, craven and mortified. Craven means cowardly, but I hear people use it to mean Machiavellian, amorally strategic a lot lately. That seems like an odd jump of meaning. Also, I hear people use mortified to mean horrified. I assume that's because they share some sounds, but maybe something else is going on there. Anyway, I'm just curious about words being used in ways that don't really connect to their original meanings. And those are two that I've noticed in real time. What marks the transition from misuse of a word to that word just meaning something new? Are either of those words near the tipping point? Claire. Well, thank you, Claire, for emailing your question. And anybody listening to this show can email in a question to thefab413 at nepm.org. Or text us at 1-800-639-9120. And then we will relay it to Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster. But what's your take on Claire's question? She will rain her wisdom down upon us. Not not, not wisdom, but but some history and, and some patterns that happen in English. I think it's a great question. I hadn't really noticed this happening with either of these words, but I'm sure that, that Claire is noticing this happening. Craven is a particularly interesting word, I think, because it it does mean cowardly. In its oldest meaning, this is a word that's been with us since the 13th century. Its original meaning was defeated or vanquished. So you would be craven when you were the one who had been completely routed. And somehow from there, the word shifted to this meaning of cowardly. So the word has undergone shifts before because the shifts in meaning are just part and parcel of words. Words don't have a static meaning. They shift all the time. How do you two feel about this word? I love that word. I love it too, but I think of Wes Craven and like... (laughs) Nightmare on Elm Street. Sorry, kids. I don't believe in fairy tales. And then I always start to think, is it something scary that comes to attack me when I try to have dreams? And, like, as per usual, I think about it in terms of sound. Like, I can understand sonically why somebody would start using Craven to mean something equivalent to Machiavellian. Interesting. The other thing that I think of is a synonym of the word Craven is dastardly. I love that and word. <laughs> dastardly is a really good word. In our unabridged dictionary, it's defined as treacherously cowardly, which I think is just, it's, it's not great to have two L-Y adverbs, right? Like that euphonically, it's not, you know, it's not the best sounding definition, but I think it's so nice and concise and good. Treacherously cowardly. Like, but that's interesting because cow- that seems to combine, like if you're treacherous, it means maybe you're plotting some treachery. 
country like Machiavellian and yet at the same time are cowardly. And I think there are a lot of at least characters in literature, and I think there are some that may be um, indicted for crimes against this country that Speaking have... Speaking of, this weekend I learned the sign for Trump. In sign language? Yeah. Uh, Do it. It's this. Oh, wow. It's yeah. like a wave of it, hair. It, it's a wave of hair. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I was talking necessarily about the former president. The idea that you are both somehow cowardly and got these political machinations, Machiavellian style, to make it something dastardly or perhaps even craven. Right. Well, in theory, cowardliness is really about self-protection. It is driven by self-interest. And so is Machiavellian behavior. The aim is to serve the self and to not bravely stand up to the bad guys. But if the bad guys seem like they're the ones who are going to win, you join them and then you, you know, you, you undermine everybody else for your own for your own benefit. Do we get that correlation between Craven and like Toady? Sure. You're right. 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 Yeah. The sycophant, the Toady, there's always this serving of the of the one in power. So what it seems like is happening with Craven is that it is going from being this kind of passive cowardliness to being an active act of self-protection that maybe requires in some ways bravery. Like you've got to take a chance. You've got to do something daring if you are going to pull off some kind of dastardly, treacherous act. I keep um, thinking of Wormtail from the Harry Potter series where he did this really cowardly act, but it took some bravery and it was Machiavellian and all this plotting all at the same time. I return out of fear, not loyalty. And so. not Dastardly Dog from Hanna-Barbera? <laughs> oh, well, I love Dastardly Dog. And also I have a, when my kids used to poop, when I was teaching them how to poop, <laughs> I would tell them- Oh, you had to teach no yours? One, no one has to teach children how to poop. They come out- On a toilet. Knowing how to poop. I would tell them a story about Harry, Gary, and Mary, the fairies. And the person that they fought was Dastardly. So that's what oh. I, that's really where I jumped to with Dastardly. My own creation of a, of a dumb fairy Anyway, what about Claire Morneau's second part of her question? Maybe people who are hearing about my evil character Dastard Lee are mortified, but maybe they're horrified. I or... think they're mostly mortified that you taught your children to poop. Potty training is a thing. I know. I'm aware. I've been through it. Yeah. I, well, it was mostly to keep them company while they were doing it. I don't want to get into the details of how we actually did the potty training. That's Thank for you. Not, another show. It's another called, show, not it's on any Elimination PM. communication, and it is a very yeah. uh, difficult task. Anyway, mortified and horrified. Mortified was Claire Morneau's second <laughs> question, the, the transition from mortified to mean horrified. Is it because they share the same sound? Do they actually mean close enough to the same thing to use them interchangeably? Well, again, like the shift is not at all surprising to me. Mortified, of course, means feeling or showing strong shame or embarrassment, as the Merriam-Webster.com dictionary defines it. And it is uh, dates to the early 18th century. It comes from the older verb to mortify. Now, the word mortify has got a pretty horrifying history. <laughs> Nicely done. Maybe a mortifying history even. <laughs> so it's, its actual origin came into English during the Middle English period in the 14th century through Anglo-French and then all the way back to late Latin mortificare. And it comes from the Latin root mort or mors, which is the same root of mortician, mortuary, mortician, Gomez, mortal, all these things having to do with death, as well as, as, well as the word mortgage. Ooh, <laughs> yikes. Death that felt through all houses. too real. Death through houses. <laughs> yeah, horrifying, right? Like, of course. <laughs> yes, mortifying. Yes, things are, yeah. Now, in the, in the 14th century, when the word was first adopted in, into English, again, this is the verb mortify, it meant to destroy the strength, vitality, or functioning of. To, to kill kind of on a deep level. 
Sounds horrifying. Yeah. But it's supposed and to mean being embarrassed to the point of feeling like you're dead? Yes. <laughs> we define the verb as to subject to severe and vexing embarrassment. <laughs> shame. So to be mortified, right? For if, if something mortifies you, it shames you. The, the word shame is doing interesting things in English these days, too. Mm. Um, to Another bathroom-related thing from the Belmonte family. Oh, when no. I was a kid and I would knock on the door and my mother was in the bathroom, she would say, don't come in because I am shamey. She used to use naked and shamey interchangeably, and that didn't do any psychological damage to me. I'm sorry. Continue. That's the most Catholic thing we've <laughs> had all day. Yeah, also very interesting adjectiving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that other, the other meaning was to subdue or deaden. Actually, this is, this is also <laughs> pretty religious. To subdue or deaden the body or bodily appetites, etc., especially by abstinence or self-inflicted pain or discomfort. Wow. Hair shirt. Yes. Yeah. So in certain religious sects, I think particularly Christian ones, you would to mortify the body was to do yourself damage as a way of um, purifying Hello, Dominicans and Benedictines. It's, it's got a wide, broad history, actually. So the roots of mortify are actually in death, which is pretty interesting. So the, the word actually softened in meaning. It kind of it became much more mild when it went to, um, instead of being this like self-inflicting of pain and injury, to go from that to just being made embarrassed. So the original definition of mortified was actually more horrifying. But now people are using mortified to mean horrified in a way that it hadn't previously been used. Remember, there were a few centuries in between the verb mortify and the adjective mortified. From what I can tell, the adjective mortified has, for its entire history in the English language, since the early 18th century, it's had to do with shame and embarrassment. But the word that it comes from, the verb mortify, has this other history. And I think that it is important, as Claire suggests, to recognize the similarity in just the word's presentations, like mortified, horrified. They rhyme. They appear in similar circumstances where it's an an extreme emotion that is being felt. We're so familiar with the word horrified that mortified is really primed to be applied in situations where you you want horrified but worse. You want horrified but more extreme. You won't say... Um, I was very, very horrified. Instead, you might just say, oh, I was mortified because mortified, well, it sounds like death and it just sounds worse. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're embarrassed. It just means you're really horrified. I feel like you could use horrified for embarrassed. I think that I have on occasion. Oh, I think you absolutely can. Claire is noticing this this uh, thing happening with mortified, where it's being used in places where horrified is used. But I think horrified is also being used in places where mortified is traditionally the, the word that is used. Mortified and horrified. You can a, be both. A question that was submitted <laughs> by Claire Morneau. I will say that now you can use either to mean horrified, but now you have to use shamey to mean mortified. Oh. And it doesn't mean naked anymore. Um, you can also <laughs> submit a question irregardless of your opinions on the words we talk about oh, on this show. Just like the person who submitted the irregardless question last week, you can go to the fab 413 at nepm.org and submit your linguistic query or... You say the text now. Okay. 1-800-639-9120. Thank you, Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. You're very welcome. I'm so happy to have learned shamey. Yeah, that's going to be the title of my autobiography someday. 
Shame doesn't pl- imply enough death to be on the same level as mortify, and okay. I stand by it. <laughs> Shamey's back to naked again, then. <laughs> Up next, newly appointed board member for the Woodland Partnership of Western Massachusetts, Rhonda Anderson. But honestly, that's just the latest peak to the iceberg of the things she does in the area and beyond. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I was scanning the NEPM website the other day and I saw a headline that said Western Mass Forest Partnership reserves board seat for indigenous representative. A public-private conservation partnership in Western Mass is working to include indigenous perspectives in its mission to protect forests and encourage sustainable development. As one step toward that goal, the Woodland Partnership of Northwest Massachusetts has reserved a permanent seat on its board for a representative from the Okiteu Cultural Center, a multi-tribal nonprofit organization in Ashfield that works with indigenous people and the board recently elected Rhonda Anderson, founder and co-director of Okiteu Cultural Center, to this board. The uh, story is actually by Paula Moore from WBUR, but Rhonda Anderson, who I've had the privilege of knowing for years now and is additionally the Commissioner of Indian Affairs for Western Massachusetts, joins us. Welcome to the Fabulous 413, Rhonda. Thank you very much for having me, Monty. <laughs> and you're in your ancestral homelands right now, currently, not in the 413, but in Alaska. I am in the 907. <laughs> <laughs> it's gorgeous there from what we're seeing in your background. <laughs> All gorgeous yeah, trees and sunlight. It fills my heart to be here. Um, not only to see my family and my friends, community, culture, but to be on the land. It recharges my batteries when I come here. <laughs> well, before we talk to, about the woods closer to this land and the wood, a woodland partnership of uh, Northwestern Massachusetts, tell us what brought you to Western Mass. Love, <laughs> or maybe it was the the what happens when love doesn't happen anymore. My my mom got divorced, and she <laughs> when I, when I was uh, about four, and she left Fairbanks, Alaska, and um, went to go live with her mother, who had relocated to New Jersey. And so we weren't in New Jersey for very long because going from Alaska to New Jersey is kind of a shock. So um, my <laughs> mom ended up moving to Windsor, Massachusetts, and then to Plainfield, Massachusetts, where I grew up and went to school. That's how I ended up in Western Massachusetts. So she went <laughs> as far as possible away from that relationship as she could get and still be in the United States, basically, going east. Yeah, I'm not saying that, but yeah, I'm saying that. <laughs> Tell us about your role, first as the Commissioner of uh, Indian Affairs, as they call it, for Western Massachusetts. So So in 2006, one of the commissioners, he's actually now the chair, Troy Phillips, he called and said, I am leaving my position in Western Massachusetts. Uh, Would you like to take over? You have to apply. You have to go through a pretty stringent process. Um, And I said, sure. Well, I I had asked uh, the executive director um, and he said, no, you need to do some work. I want to see you places. I want to see you in community. Take, Take some time. I said, okay. So I took that advice wholeheartedly. And that's when I really started to dive into what needs to be done, what's missing, how representation should be happening for tribal communities, because I would be, I'm the liaison between governments. So the sovereign governments of tribal and the state of Massachusetts and as well, federal government if needed be. Um, But I'm sort of that go-between. So I spent uh, many years really diving into what is needed for representation and gaining the trust 
of Indigenous communities. Once that happened, um, and that was 2020, I applied and the governor signed me on. So here I am. What have been some of the priorities that you've been working on in this role since then? Well, I have I have my hand in lots of different pots right now. I can walk, talk, and chew gum. So um, one of the things that I do as commissioner, I am putting together a truth and healing commission. So this past April in Boston, uh, with help of Suffolk Law University and uh, Boston UMass, we put together a panel of three Indigenous representatives, one from California, one from Canada, and one from Maine, that are either participating in a truth and reconciliation or have already completed one, and taking a look at the different ways in which they were started, uh, how they've been carried out. So one was state, one was uh, government, and one was grassroots. And how would that look in Massachusetts? And uh, this August and September, we'll be starting our listening sessions, going to communities and asking each community what it is that they would like to see from a truth and healing. And I call it truth and healing because what is reconciliation if you don't have a good relationship to begin with? Ah, hmm. uh, so uh, truth and healing commission. Uh, what what it is that Massachusetts needs to take a look at? There's going to take about a year. Um, there's about twelve different communities that we're looking to to listen to, and uh, we're putting together, compiling all the data, and then having another big meeting where we'll compile all the data and hopefully everyone will be on board and then we go legislatively. I'm assuming that we're going to go legislatively, although it could be, you know, a grassroots campaign. I don't know yet. We're speaking with Rhonda Anderson, who's the Commissioner of Indian Affairs for Western Massachusetts. And it's interesting in the town that I live in, Montague, in the village called Turner's Falls or Great Falls or Peskiumskit, depending on who you ask. There was a grassroots, but with the town government involved, healing ceremony between the indigenous community and the government there. Now, many people know there was a horrible massacre that occurred in 1676 on the banks right there. There are many people who to this day say that that was a transformational moment for that village in regards to where the reputation of quote unquote Turner's Falls was to where it is right now. Oh, absolutely. You know, my personal feeling is that Turner's Falls needs to have a crop dusting of sage. (laughs) (laughs) One might question if there's enough sage. (laughs) There isn't enough sage. But a lot of things positive have begun. You know, there is the Pecumtuck Homelands Festival that now happens there. I think that is a good first step. What do you think? Absolutely. In order to heal, there does need to be recognition and saying those hard words, right? The truth part of it needs to happen before there's any kind of healing. And that is saying those hard words of genocide, dispossession, massacre. You know, this this wasn't this wasn't a war. This was a massacre. And saying those hard truths really need to happen in order for healing to come. You're talking about the healing ceremony that had happened. And I think that that was a very good step because it brought awareness to what happened in that that little town. But I think we're still a long ways away from really creating a space where people understand what happened to Indigenous communities here, that they're still here. I think most people just assume that there's no more Native people living in Massachusetts. That's keeps coming up that like genuinely astounds me. (laughs) Right. I think that's in some ways how Okateo got started. Okateo Cultural Center was started 
essentially we can trace our roots right back to when Asheville's historical uh, commission said that to Double Edge founder Stacey Klein when they were doing their town-wide spectacle and they asked for indigenous history of the area. The, the historical folks said there were never native people here and there are no native people here. Thankfully, Stacey didn't take that uh, to heart. <laughs> that is a hill to die on. There were never, never, no, really. And, and from from what I understand, not that far away from Double Edge Theater, we're talking just a couple of miles away, there's an 8,000-year-old site of continuous inhabitation. So <laughs> I don't know. You know, I'm really grateful for that moment because uh, Stacey did not take that to heart and uh, went on a fact-finding mission to UMass, and I ended up sitting next to Carlos Uriona and Jennifer Johnson of Double Edge Theater, and that began our relationship. Um, I said, what? No, let me introduce you to some folks, because that is not true. Up next, more with Rhonda Anderson. We'll hear all about why Western Mass should take a good, hard look at renaming the Mohawk Trail and why Hail to the Sunrise statue right on the trail is outrageously offensive. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. We're speaking with Rhonda Anderson, who is the Commissioner for Indian Affairs from Western Massachusetts and who is now a part of the Woodlands Partnership of Northwestern Massachusetts. There's a permanent seat on the board for representatives from uh, Indigenous peoples. Tell us about what this board is and why this is something that you are now a part of and, and what the vision and mission is. I'm, I'm really excited to be part of this board. There's a story behind that. I was trying to get on a grant that would be partnering with a local town. I was hoping for Ashfield uh, so that there could be more accurate representation along the Route 2 corridor and creating, I don't know, perhaps better kiosks, storyboards, something where there could be an educational piece about who is from this area, who is still here, um, because it's not Mohawk area. Uh, Mohawk Trail uh, is a misnomer. It's not an accurate name. And so Bob O'Connor from the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs recommended that I partner up with another group out of Roe. And so I sort of started this journey trying to create more of an educational point of view on Indigenous peoples and, and lift Indigenous voices. And now that I've been working with the partnership, we've done some pretty incredible work uh, as far as lifting Indigenous voices. We're talking about education, inclusion, and hopefully we can start incorporating some Indigenous environmental knowledge, uh, TEK, into some of the work that's being done, creating sustainable ecological practices. I am really excited for this. I think it's beyond time where there needs to be more Indigenous stewardship, um, Indigenous inclusion, particularly when it talks about taking care of the land as you know uh, indigenous folks have been stewarding this land for tens of thousands of years this is a long time coming and um one of our partners uh from no loose braids andre strong bear gains has friend been... of the show he's been on before we hope to have him on again soon when the homelands festival comes in just a couple weeks absolutely he's amazing and he's been doing a lot of wood walks where he goes and does cultural assessments any traditional foods traditional medicines that are on 
on the land. And that creates a moment where Indigenous people can return to the land that they've been dispossessed from to sustainably harvest food, to sustainably harvest medicines, to access sacred places for ceremony. All of that leads to a healthy community when you have access to your traditional foods, your traditional medicines, to your land. way I'm feeling right now in Alaska, I'm feeling recharged. And so this is a, a moment that I feel is a long time coming and it opens so many doors. It can lead to so many amazing things. Not to backtrack, but... Oh, please. <laughs> in the spirit of education, I'm sure not every... I, I'm aware, but I'm sure not everybody's aware why Mohawk Trail is a misnomer. Can you talk about why? And also, I've learned this from you in the past. So many things I've learned from you, Rhonda. But the uh, the Hail to the Sunrise statue and, and the story behind that, in the, which is right along the Mohawk Trail. Tell us why this is problematic and something that probably should be rectified. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> so Clinton Q. Richmond gave the name. I guess it had already been sort of coined by some Williamstown professors, Williams College. They were just sort of imagining uh, who might be the native tribe that they recognize. And Mohawk was a pretty significant tribe at the time. And they had passed through on occasion, mostly for purposes of war. They certainly didn't hunt or fish there. They are uh, an agricultural community that's over 200 miles to the north, northwest. So there was no need for them to come through other than for warfare at the time. <laughs> but it was coined by, um, you know, white folks uh, for their pageants to create funding for the newly established Route 2 corridor as a, a tourist attraction almost. And so it's not an educationally sound name. Uh, it completely invisibilizes the communities that resided there and are still there. For example, Pukamtuk, that is the community that would have resided alongside the, the banks of the Pukamtuk River, which is the Deerfield River. Uh, they were dispossessed from their land and uh, they suffered from war and genocide and sought refuge in their neighboring communities. Nipmuc folks are also Pukamtuk folks. Um, and that's something that's, that's not very uh, well known and mostly because of the name Mohawk Trail, everyone just assumes, and a lot of plaques in Shelburne Falls give credence, although it's not, <laughs> it's not accurate, that this is where Mohawk fished. Um, and, and I believe, um, I, I don't know if I should say this, but I know that Mohalo Candles had put up a plaque. That also is not an accurate representation of who is here. I believe he had either Passamaquoddy or Penobscot, which are also 200 and something miles uh, to the northeast in some of the most incredible fishing area, you know, on the East Coast, they wouldn't come to Shelburne Falls to go fishing. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's, there's a lot of inaccuracies. And of course, 
a lot of people assume that the big Indian is, you know, that's an accurate representation. That is not. That is the cigar store Indian, and that is of Western Plains style. And that no is also a right stereotype. Now, thanks to the work of uh, Rhonda Anderson and others at Okiteu, and the, the Himalayan views folks have been very um, open-minded to the idea about why they needed to take what was this iconic statue on Route 2 down and, and rethink it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, I credit uh, that ambition. Really, I've tried. Uh, in 2012, I, I began that process, um, but it takes deep listening, which is not easy to do. It's very hard. Sometimes it's easier to hold on to something that feels comfortable oh. than to be uncomfortable for a moment and have that deep listening. It takes a while. And I think that uh, when I had the Living Presence piece that was about statues, monuments in this area and how that that leads to Indians firsting and lasting and, and inaccurate representation through Okateo Cultural Center. Tamantha, I asked her how she felt as an Anishinaabe woman, um, not of here. How did she feel when she, you know, along these roads and sees these plaques and monuments that are sort of um, imperialistic, nationalistic agenda type <laughs> monuments? And she said she was like right smack up in her face. You can't escape from it. And of course, one of the most uncomfortable ones is the big Indian. And so she really took that on, you know, like this needs to change. And so she created this moment to listen and create a relationship. She has really followed through with that. It's been amazing. You know, we came into this conversation with Sona Mama with medicine. That was her, her idea. We need to come into it with medicine and with an idea of peace. Like, this is not your fault. You know, this is... He's the um, owner of the Himalayan View store there that took over for that cigar store Indian that has been an iconic, uh, you know, tourist attraction for, for decades now. They're very open-minded to, to talk about change. And I think that's a big, another, again, a big first step. And that's creating that relationship and really being able to have deep listening. And I, I really appreciate that. I know that the, the statue will, from what I understand, will likely be sold and relocated. So I'm not sure how I feel about that. But <laughs> that actually kind of dovetails into my next question, which is so I in my in my brain imagine this as more of a kind of driving, walking, educational thing. Is it in your plans or at all important to keep record of the inaccuracies so that people can see what everyone thought happened next to what actually did happen or what or better representations? We, we went through this process of thinking uh, about creating kiosks next to the Big Indian statue to talk about how it's inaccurate, why it's wrong. Oh, I think in that, that case, like, photos will suffice. We ain't got to keep the whole right. statue. <laughs> right. That sort of representation is still very prevalent in, in America today. So we don't need to save it. And actually having the Big Indian up is still going to create miseducation. It's not educationally sound. And who's going to stop and read a kiosk next to it? So there is that possibility. But I, I feel like it needs to be more educationally focused on who was here and who is still here 
rather than how poorly represented and treated me, I guess. That needs to just change. Um, as you were saying, Monty, the Hail to the Sunrise statue that we see on every scenic signpost from Boston to Albany, that's not okay. Uh, while that guy, I've said this before, that guy is very handsome, but <laughs> <laughs> however, that was put up by the improved order of red men. And let me say that again, the improved order of red men. And their mission is to preserve Indian culture and give honor to the vanishing nations of Indian people. So that statue is erected and the fountain with all the names on it, which people read and think that they're actual native tribes. They're not native tribes. You need to be a white man and now I guess white women, uh, but you cannot be native to join and then you're given a native name. It could be Pocahontas. Those are the names that you see along the plaque. Yeah, I see you rolling your eyes. And I don't think <laughs> I don't think nearly enough people know this story. That yeah, the whole frankly. thing is a farce and offensive. Yes. It absolutely is, and that's next on my agenda. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you've got great representation from Western Mass and the Commission of Indian Affairs with Rhonda Anderson, who's also one of the co-founders of the Okiteu Cultural Center in Ashfield, and who's now just been uh, appointed as part of the Woodlands Partnership of Northwestern Massachusetts from her homelands in Alaska right now, but soon to be back in her adopted homelands with us here in the 413. Always educational to talk to you, Rhonda. I so appreciate your uh, your wisdom and, and sharing it with me and with our listeners. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I think that there's, you know, a great need for education. There's a great need to lift Indigenous voices. So I really appreciate it. Tomorrow, the Fabulous 413 is live from a double-decker Peter Pan bus. So cool. The Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival kicks off on Fort Street in front of the Student Prince Thursday evening. And we'll be there Thursday afternoon on the bus that blocks off the street to traffic, talking with festival founders Kristen and Khalif Neville and Evan Plotkin, as well as Ray Berry from White Line Brewing. Plus, a special performance from the Garifuna Collective who will open up the festival on Fort Street that night. Big thanks to the Fabulous 413 team. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Kalee Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. And dance. Get her out of my heart.